0: If you turn your Bibles to the book of Matthew this morning, we're in Matthew chapter 5 and uh, verses 33 through 37. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Pew Bible in the Pew Rack in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 810. Page 810, and we continue in our series looking at the Sermon uh, on the Mount, and uh, we find ourselves amidst what we have called kingdom actions uh, that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ called us to live out. And over the past couple of weeks, in fact four weeks, we have been looking at how Jesus has been in many ways reordering uh, our understanding of what God requires of us in the way of holiness. And at the time of Jesus giving this message, there was a new set of criteria that, uh, that, or that the Pharisees and chief priests had made. Uh, to look uh, what holiness was to look like and uh, they had said that holiness was different than what the law had required and and notice Jesus is going to take it if you will to the to the tilt if you will to the idea Um, notice in verse 48 in our our passage where he's going to tell us we must be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect and and here's the thing it's a tall order it's a tall order. These last couple of weeks have been uh, tough things to uh, preach through, tough things to hear as uh, listeners and, and to ask the question, really, God, are you serious? You you want us to be perfect in all these ways when it comes to our anger and our lust and in our marriages and, and in what we say uh, today with regards to revenge and retaliation next week and loving our enemies the week after. These are hard truths a couple different times during Jesus' teaching to his disciples. His disciples say, these are hard things. Who who can understand them? Who can live by them? And uh, we can take solace that, yes, we can live by these things because we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. He indwells us, and we have that opportunity to tap into uh, the grace that is there. But we also recognize that amidst that, uh, we are so prone not to be empowered by the Spirit. And because of that, uh, we sin. And we can do one of two things. We can do Uh, what the Pharisees and and chief priests of the day and rabbis of the day did, and that is to minimize the requirements of the law and and make it easier, if you will, to lower the standard and say if you do uh, maybe half of the things or or if you uh, work through a man-made system, then you'll be okay. Or we can take God's word at uh, face value and say these are hard things, these are tough things, and it's going to mean that I'm going to need to inevitably roll up my spiritual sleeves on my on my shirt and and get to work and and to honor God with the way I live and here's the thing most of us and part of the human condition is that we will always go to minimize and not only will we go to minimize but we will find teachers that will minimize Uh, things as well, to find loopholes and and all of that. And I want to remind you just outside of our text that the Apostle Paul predicted these things uh, would be the case in 2 Timothy 4, 3, and 4. He says, "...for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They'll have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth." And wander off into myths that was true when Jesus preached this message, this Sermon on the mount, and it 's true as we preach this message today and so my desire is for all of us is that by god 's grace, we would humbly submit to the teaching of God's word, no matter how difficult it may be, no matter how much we have failed in the past, and we would submit to the teachings of Christ and not give in to the temptation to lower the standard you know in grade school and even high school uh i used to love when the teacher said this test is going to be grade on a curve and uh, i don't know why they did that maybe they felt the test was too hard and inevitably there was a smart person in the room who would get a 99 and so you got one point extra yeehaw okay that one point never helped me but uh but I always loved it. Anytime they would say that the, grade, the grades were going to be done on a curve, because that always helped me. It always enabled me to uh, take what I think is a failing grade and maybe do a little better. And We need to understand that God doesn't grave on a, grade on a curve. But God graves on the, grades on the righteousness of Christ. And here's the great thing that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. No, we will fail. And we have a failing grade when it comes to our righteousness, because of sin, which misses the mark of God's holiness. But thanks be to God that Christ came, he who knew no sin became sin, on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so can we be perfect? We already are, in God's eyes, because of Christ's righteousness. And so what God is requiring of us now is to live in a way that we live our lives in such a way that we achieve what has already been achieved for us, and that is righteousness. So with all that as an introduction, let's look at Matthew five thirty three through 37, as you to stand for the reading of God's Word, as we look at our text once again. Again, you can find it on page 810. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not fear, swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Lord, I pray that you would teach us how to speak. You would teach us how to commit to things and make vows to things. Lord, I'm struck and and have been struck at how flippant we are with our words. And when we say we're going to do something, we don't live up to that. Lord, I'm guilty of that. And ask your forgiveness with regards to that. And, Lord, I recognize that these people, probably many, may be in the same boat that I am. And so, Lord, we need this teaching on, on the use of our words, on the use of oaths and vows, on the issue of commitments. Lord, we need to hear it and, and, and submit ourselves to your teaching and strive to, to live differently. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach us in our own way today. Lord, uh, this passage, to see what was going on in the days of Jesus and to try to apply those things to our lives, Lord, and to do so so that we may leave this place and in the days to come live differently so that you may be brought glory and honor through not only the way that we believe, but the way that we live and the way we speak towards one another. And Lord, I pray that that would be the case today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As we look at our text this morning, a little different than the text that we've had before us, where it's been easy to simply apply uh, the teachings of Jesus. If you think about it, we've talked about the issue of anger, and and the issue of anger in Jesus' day is similar to the issue of anger today. The issue of lust is very similar, that in the first century, as it is in the 21st century. The issue of marriage is the same in the first century as it was in the 21st century, And what Jesus is now going to share is a first century issue that in some ways a little difficult to have an apples to apples application because what they were doing is something we don't do a lot of, maybe um, not in the same ways. And so what I want to do is understand where they were at and then apply to the best of our ability how that might impact us uh, this morning. And simply put, the text we have before us, what Jesus is articulating is something that we are in great need of hearing, and that is is that Christ wants his followers to be men and women who are known for integrity in their speech, who are totally trustworthy and faithful, whose word is their bond and is considered ironclad, but they will do as they say. Now, Ken Hughes, the former pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Wheaton, said this of our society We are in an urgent truth shortage. There was a time when Western culture was distinguished from all other cultures by at least a conventional outward sense of obligation to tell the truth. But now there's a pervasive indifference to truth telling. And this has not only infected day to day conversations, but the most solemn pledges of life. Perjury under solemn oath is epidemic. The sacred vows of marriage are broken almost as often as they are repeated and God's name is invoked by blatant liars who purport to be witnesses to the truth. Now, as young as I can remember, my parents and and people within the church, teachers in the school, have told us the importance of telling the truth. It's something we know and understand to be honest in all that we do. But I gotta be honest with you and that is that It's hard to tell the truth. Because as adults, we know that it's not simply just telling the truth and you go on your merry way, but sometimes the truth really hurts. Sometimes telling the truth will create more issues than maybe not being completely honest. And Jesus tells us that no matter how difficult it is for us to tell the truth, we should do so. And yet, to recognize telling the truth isn't always easy. On one occasion, there were two brothers who were very rich. Two, those two brothers were as wicked as they were rich. Both lived wild, unprofitable existences, using their wealth to cover up the dark sides of their lives. On the surface, you would have never guessed it, for both of them were committed members of a church. They both attended the same church every Sunday and, in fact, gave large sums of money to the church projects. On one occasion, the church they belonged to called a new pastor. He was a man who preached the gospel and the truth of God with zeal and courage. And before long, the attendance within that assembly grew so much that they needed to add a larger building. But the pastor was no fool. Being a man of keen judgment, insight, and strong integrity, he saw through the hypocritical lives of these two brothers. All of a sudden, out of the blue, one of the brothers died. The new pastor was then asked to preach at his funeral. And the day before the funeral, the surviving brother pulled the pastor aside and handed him an envelope. There's a large check in there, large enough to pay the entire amount of what you need for the new sanctuary, Pastor. All I ask is one favor. Tell the people at the funeral that my brother was a saint. I know it's not completely the truth, but he's dead and they need to hear it. The pastor gave the man his word and said, I will do as precisely that that which you've asked me. So that afternoon he went along went to the bank, deposited the check into the church's account, and the next day the pastor stood before a great audience of people before the coffin and said with a firm conviction to his words, this man before us, who now has gone to the beyond, was an ungodly sinner, wicked to the core, he was unfaithful to his wife, hot tempered with his children, ruthless in his business, and a complete hypocrite within the church. But compared to his brother, he was an absolute saint. <laughs> Not only is that integrity in words, but an amazing sense of humor and wit. And yet, we come before a passage this morning where we are called, compelled, Not by another man, but by our Lord, our Master, our Savior. To tell the truth. To be honest in all of our dealings. To when we make a vow, to stand by our vow and our commitment. To understand this text before us, we have to understand four things this morning. And I want you to follow along in your bulletin insert. We're going to see, first of all, that as we look at this issue of oaths and vows in the Sermon on the Mount, that we must recognize the principle, first of all, the principle that Jesus states regarding them. What is Jesus wanting to tell us? What are we to understand of the day in which Jesus was speaking to? Well, Jesus is addressing the speaking and the use of solemn oaths and vows to address the sinful practice of lying in his day. It was common in that day for a man to use God's name as a way to prove the solemn nature to his vows. And we're going to see how we do that today as well. It's a little different. And Jesus doesn't exactly quote any of the particular passages in the Old Testament, but what he seems to do is, in a summary version, say that by doing this, you break the law and you are untrustworthy. And so we need to understand, first of all, where is Jesus pulling this call for us to be people who do not only swear falsely but uh, who do exactly what we say we're going to do. So I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament for a moment. And we're going to get a, an understanding of what the Scriptures tell us about it. So turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 10.20. Deuteronomy 10.20. If you have a pew Bible, that's page 155. Page 155. Deuteronomy 10.20. So what does the Bible say about this? Because we need to understand that Scripture interprets Scripture. And right away it seems that Jesus seems to say, don't take any vows at all. Don't take any oaths. Don't take any uh, commitments. Don't do any of that. Just simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. But we need to see what Scripture says about that to understand what Jesus is saying. And so first of all, Deuteronomy 10.20 tells us the following. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. And by his name you shall swear. That doesn't mean you can curse. Okay? That's not the swearing they're talking about. But that you can invoke God's name to make a commitment. And you're okay in doing so. And God wants us to do that. Uh, just keep your uh, finger in uh, Deuteronomy and uh, turn in your Bibles for a moment to the book of Jeremiah. To the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Jeremiah uh, chapter 12, verse 16. Jeremiah 12, verse 16. And this is a word to what, what Jeremiah is supposed to do for those that come into Israel as foreigners, as people who are coming out of the captivity. How are they to become followers of Yahweh? And in Jeremiah twelve sixteen, it says the following. And it shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people, to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up into the midst of the people. And so here, once again, the criteria of, of being a part of the covenant people of God was to swear by the name of God, and that was one of the ways that uh, we were to worship God, was to use God as, if you will, the standard of all truth he is the divine standard by which when we swear we are invoking a name that is the standard of all truth in all of life now now notice within these two verses we see that oaths are not condemned as we might take Jesus's words to say that but they are encouraged that Jesus see or God sees oaths and vows and commitments as a way for us especially in using and invoking his name uh, to praise God, to show him as the great standard-bearer that he is. But notice, not only are they encouraged by God, but they, the practice of oaths and vows had consequences to them as well. Notice in your Bible, turn for a moment to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, you'll find that on uh, page uh, 97. Page 97 in your pew Bible. And notice, amidst uh, these laws... Uh, about loving your neighbor as yourself in verse 12. It says, let's just start in verse 11, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, for I am the Lord. Turn a couple pages to the right, to the book of Numbers, just the next book over. Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. Numbers 30, verse 2. You'll find that on page 138. And notice what it says here in Numbers. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And it goes on and it talks then about the vows between men and women, husbands and wives, later on in that text. Turn one more time to Deuteronomy twenty three. So keep going to your right, Deuteronomy twenty three, page one sixty five in the Pew Bibles. Verse twenty one, Deuteronomy twenty three, twenty one. Listen to what this says. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, notice what he says, you shall not delay in fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you. You will be guilty of sin. But notice what verse 22 and on says, but if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So let's just understand this for a moment as we read Jesus, we we begin to think, okay, Jesus is against all vows. And we'll talk about how some groups have have done that. Now, there are times that it would seem that some vows are, maybe a better way to put it, is not all vows are created equal. And we need to use wisdom. We need to use discernment on whether what vows are good vows and which ones are not. Now, some of you may uh, be aware of this, but one place where oaths and vows are are huge within the world uh, is within uh, societies, groups of people uh, that have come together for various reasons. And one certain society, that being the, the Freemasons or the Masonic, you'll see Masonic temples from places to place, they, they are very much into the issue of oaths and vows. Now, uh, I don't have time here in this uh, place to, to share this, but quite frankly, my understanding of uh, the Masons is that they are a satanic organization. And you can, uh, you can study that. There's much written from a biblical perspective on secret societies like that. I say that uh, as one who had a grandfather who was uh, very high up in the Mason ladder. And I want to read to you, speaking of oaths, where discernment needs to be used as to the issue. Now... To be a part of, an, uh, to be an apprentice and brought into the Mason uh, group of individuals, you must say, uh, on my own free will and accord, in the presence of Almighty God, in this worshipful lodge erected to him and dedicated to the Holy St. John, do hereby and hereon most solemnly and sincerely promise and swear that I will always hail, ever conceal, and never reveal any of the secret arts, parts, or points of the hidden mysteries of the ancient Freemasonry which has been there hereto may at this time or shall any time in the future be communicated to me as such to any persons whomsoever except it be true and lawful brother Mason or within a regular constituted lodge of Masons and neither unto him or them until by strict trial due to due examination or legal information I shall have found him or them lawfully entitled to the same as myself. Listen to what it says. You say, that's a lot. What in the world do they say? And this is the problem with some oaths. I furthermore promise and swear that I will not write, print, paint, stamp, stain, cut, carve, make, or not engrave them, nor cause the same to be done upon any movable or immovable thing. ...capable of receiving the least impression of a word, syllable, letter, or character, whereby the same becomes legible or intelligible to any person under the canopy of heaven and the secrets of Freemasonry by thereby unlawfully obtained through my unworthiness. To all this I most solemnly and sincerely promise and swear with a firm and steadfast resolution to keep and perform the same without equivocation, mental reservation, or secret evasion of mind, whatever binding myself under no less a penalty that my throat being cut across and my tongue torn out by its root and buried in the rough sands of the sea at a low water mark where the tide ebbs and flows twice in 24 hours should I ever knowingly or willingly violate with this solemn oath or obligation and entered apprentice mason. So help me God and keep me steadfast in the due performance of the same of this oath okay here 's the thing number one and, and again i don 't have time for this, so you could take your pastor 's word for it, do some reading on freemasonry it 's a cult, okay, and no no good, solid Christian can find themselves pursuing such things, and the reason why we believe in this is it 's the mixing okay of a brotherhood of demonic rituals and ideals and responses with enough scripture to make it sound biblical. And so I say that not because that's the form of what's being articulated, but I had three or four individuals come to me and ask me, hey, hey, I I know of oaths because of this Freemasonry thing. And many of them are, are like me who had family members a part of it. And you think, well, it's the Lions Club or the Kiwanis. No, let me tell you something. The Masons are not that. Okay, this isn't helping in some some layer, layer of philanthropy, if you will. This is a spiritual thing where the people that are part of Freemasonry believe they're the only children of God and they have the secrets of God and we are told that we should not pursue such things. So just a reminder, if you ever wonder where the church stands on that, I think it's a cult. I think you need to stay away from it, and we need to rescue people from that. But this is some of the garbage that comes from that. So I digress, and let's get back into the series. So where are we to apply these things? Okay, So there's a bad bad, um, oath before you cut out your throat and all that, and you say, well, that's just sick. Well, you're going to learn here in a moment that we say some pretty sick things and we're going to notice what they did as well that seems kind of odd because the heart is deceitfully sick and out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we wonder where this garbage comes from. It comes from the heart. We say stupid stuff because we believe stupid stuff. So where does this flesh itself out? What Jesus is going to articulate fleshes itself out in three ways this morning. Number one, you will get, first of all, it involves courtroom proceedings. At some point in your life here in this country, you'll be called on to stand before a jury of individuals or a judge, and you will be sworn to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. We bring God into our courtroom proceedings. We many times put our hands uh, on the Bible. I will tell you that putting your swearing on the Bible is an optional thing. Now you'll say, well, it's darn atheists. They fixed it for us. We can't even swear on our Bible. Can I tell you that that provision in the law was made not because of an atheist, but because of born-again Christian? The born-again Christian was a part of the Quaker movement. And he was asked to uh, share an oath. Quakers don't give oaths. so They believe Jesus' words to say, I cannot give any oaths. So he is told he needs to put his hand on the Bible. He's held in contempt of court, put in prison, and he's questioned about it before the judge. The judge says, why will you not swear an oath on the Bible? He says, because as I read the Bible, the Bible says, kiss the Son, Jesus Christ. Okay, that's in the Scriptures. The Son says in Matthew chapter 5, do not swear an oath. You say that that book is good enough to swear by and you're not even affirming the same words where Jesus says in the scriptures, don't swear an oath. I don't agree with it, but the guy's logic is amazing, okay? And so we don't have to swear by the Bible, not because of an atheist, but because a Christian had a conviction that he was not to give an oath. Now in the courtroom proceedings we are very clear that if you do not swear if you do uh, lie under oath you are under the the crime of perjury you can go to jail for that and i'm thankful for that because if you're going to have rule of law you have to have truth And if there isn't truth, if we can just get on the witness stand and lie all we want, we've got no order in this world, and we're going to be in a whole heap of trouble. And so I'm glad that we live in a country that has us swearing, bringing God into the courtroom proceedings, and we're held by perjury if we don't. Number two, it involves contracts between two parties. In major activities between two different people, whether it's in the business world or uh, in our personal finance, you and I from day to day will be asked to live up to a contract. Each of us, if you own a home, you're in a contract that's called a mortgage, okay? You sign your life away, all 7,000 pages of that mortgage, and really the gist of it is is a whole bunch of legalese that says you're going to pay what you borrow, Okay, and that the bank has on their side, this is what we commit to, and we're going to stay true to this, and this is what you commit to, and you need to stay true to that. And so there are contracts that we have as business people As a man who runs a company, I have contracts with my customers, contracts that say I'm going to live up to my end of the bargain. So I say I'm going to have food at this time, at this place, for this amount of people, and you, the customer, are going to pay this price, okay? And as long as I fulfill my end of the bargain and you fulfill your end of the bargain, everybody's happy. We're all good. And so we have contracts all the time. We have contracts in our workplace where we have a job description that's laid out how we are going to live. Jesus's words address things like this. Finally, it addresses commitments and promises. Vows and oaths are simply solemn promises and commitments that we make. And so what we see here is that Jesus is speaking and asking the people, what are you saying when you, or what are you doing after you've committed to something? After you've promise somebody something. Now, nowhere in any way, shape, or form does Jesus prohibit any of these from being done. He wants to make sure, listen to me, this is very important, what he wants to make sure of is that when we do such things, that we are men and women of integrity and trustworthiness, that when we say we're going to do something, that we do those things that we've laid out. That we are truthful in all of our ways. But notice, there were perversions going on both then and now. So notice the second point. There are perversions that were taking place. And Jesus lays them out in our text. He says in Matthew chapter 5, he tells us, Do not swear falsely. That's his issue. But he says, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven for it's the throne of God, or by the earth for it's the footstool of God or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. He says, he goes on and says, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make it white or black, okay? So what do we need to understand about this law? I want you to write down two things that take place, and then I'll share with them. To understand what they were doing, it's a little hard because we don't do some of these things today, but here's the issue. Number one, they were focusing in on formulas and not the facts. That's number one. And number two, they made truth a game, not a guarantee. And that's important. Under those two headings, what in the world were they doing? Now notice what was going on. Somewhere along the line, from the, the uh, articulation of Moses and the law, sometime between Moses and Jesus, the Pharisees and rabbis began to say that teach, teaching people that an oath wasn't binding unless it had God's name in it. And so people could use vows and oaths with no intention of doing what they've committed to. And so what oaths in Jesus' day had become was a system of rules, listen to me, as to how you could uh, spread the truth, in fact lie and not get in trouble for it. So if you said just the right words, you did the right things, all you needed to know was to have the right formula. And if you had the right formula, then you could lie without any fear of reprisal. Now remember, this is what the Pharisees have done. Last week, all you need to do is have your certificate of divorce. And as long as you've got your T's crossed and your I's dotted, you can do whatever you want. Forget that God wants us to live faithfully in marriage. You can do whatever you want. Just make sure the formula is right. And so notice he says, In essence, the rabbis are telling the people, it's okay to lie. It's okay to lie as long as you lie in the right way, then you can't get in trouble. Turn in your Bibles for a moment, one more time, to the book of Matthew 23. So a little farther in the book that we're in now. Matthew 23, verses 16 through 22. Jesus goes after the Pharisees on this very issue, and it'll help understand a little bit more of what's going on. So notice in verse 16, it says... Woe to you, I'll let you get there, I hear pages turning. Matthew 23, 16 through 22. Woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. I gotta believe, listen to me, that Jesus is using a whole lot of sarcasm here, Okay? So I'm going to read it with, with that in mind a little bit to help us out because he's, he's dealing with the utter hypocrisy of these formulas and these games that people were playing. So you blind guides. If anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. Oh, you blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And so in essence, what was going on in their day is they had built this whole set of ways that you could give oath that you're going to do something. All the while, it's as childish as saying, well, I did say that, but you didn't see I had my fingers crossed. Or you didn't see I winked when I said it. Or you didn't know it. I remember hearing one time uh, uh, when I was in the fourth grade, I believe it was, that one of the big things was is kids could lie in school as long as they had their foot on the crack of the tile. Oh, you didn't see I had my foot on the crack of the tile. And these were the games that were going on. If you had the right formula, if you played the right game, you could lie and you would not be held by the law. And Jesus says right away, "This this is malarkey. This Man, this is not what the law is all about, and this is not being truthful in it. And so notice, as we look, they're swearing by altars, but, uh, but that doesn't work. You've got to swear on the gold. You can't swear by that, so swear by the city of Jerusalem, by your beards, all of these different things. You say, man, these people are really dumb. I'm glad we're sophisticated and don't do those things. Oh, yes, we do. So we lie all the time, and how do we make sure people believe our lies? Well, I swear to God. Well, you just invoked God. You've just brought God into it. And whether you're telling the truth or not, you sound really compelling. So you've used the formula. And we say weird things. I had a salesman come in uh, the other day. And I always feel bad for salesmen when they come in and I'm on a, on a hot-button issue in the text. And uh, he came in and, and he wanted to tell how committed they were. And he made a comment. And, and I was like, bingo, there's what I was looking for. He said, I swear to you on my mother's grave. And I said, I'm so sorry. Is she passed? He said, no. I'm like, why would you say such a thing? And and he, poor guy, didn't see what, what was coming. But, uh, but, but we say dumb things like that. I swear on a stack of Bibles. Why? One's not good enough. We tell our kids, or we teach our kids. I don't know where they get it. I don't think it's just innate within them. A statement like this. Listen to me. You get mad at the Freemasons. I swear to God... Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Why do we say such things? What we do is we're playing, listen to me, we're playing that game of where is the ball in the, in, with the, the cups on the side of the, the street in a, in a town or a city where the guy's sitting there doing this and you're trying to keep your eye on where'd the ball go, where'd the ball go. That's what we're doing when we do things like that. Try to find the truth. Let me fake you around a little bit. Let me keep you wandering. Listen to what I swore. Listen, hey, I swear to God. Well, that means it's important. That means that God is, uh, is in this thing. All the while, we are failing because we're swearing falsely. Let me tell you why this is such a sin. Number one, God is uniquely concerned with what we are saying. The scripture tells us that we will be judged for every careless word that we say. If that doesn't have your head slumped down into your shoulders then you must be mute. Because I have said a lot of careless things. And there's going to be, people are going to be, oh, well, I had the line slow down. There are going to be, Bidal's up there. And God's talking to Bidal, and boy, that boy had a big mouth, and he said a lot of stupid things, and God's dealing with him with regards to that. We're going to be judged for that. Why? We're going to be judged because whether, listen to me, whether we take an oath or not, Whatever we swear on, you see what the day, the day of Jesus was, well, just swear by smaller stuff and then you're not profaning the name of God. Here's what God says. Whatever you swear by in all of creation, he says in the text, it's mine. I'm in control of that. So you want to swear by whatever you want to swear by, the hairs on your chinny chin chin, go ahead. But I made those hairs. I turn them dark. I turn them white. I'm the one that does it. Stress doesn't do that, by the way. God says he's in control of that, okay? So I am in control of that. And because I'm sovereign over that, you bring me into the mix. There's a great quote we've heard and when we deal with the issue of stewardship that we are reminded of by Abraham Kuyper that there's not a square inch of all of creation that Jesus doesn't cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. So if you swear by something that is God's, he says, I'm uniquely involved in it. And I am concerned about what you are saying. So you say, well, it's really not a big deal. It is a big deal to God. He's there and he's a part of it. And this is a big thing. Notice the second thing that we need to understand about it is that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. And so that means everything we say does not go without God not being in the audience of things. And this is why, listen to me, this is why God hates divorce. He hates divorce because what happens is, as we stand right here, as Amanda and I did uh, some years back, And we say to one another, I commit to this, I commit to that, so help me, God, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We make these vows and these oaths, and here's the thing, I didn't just make them to Amanda, I made them to God. And there were a bunch of witnesses to that. And so God says, hey, you, you, you haven't just offended your spouse by not living up to those vows, you've offended me. And it's not just in our marital contracts that we do this, we do this with all types of things. And we live in an epidemic where truth-telling, honesty, and integrity is not lived out. We live in a day where the news channels will fact-check what the politicians say. And now I think it's funny that news channels now fact-check news channels. We can't get anywhere because what we learn is that everybody seemingly is not telling the truth. And so here's the thing. God is uniquely concerned about it. And so then that begs the question, then what in the world are oaths for? So notice the third point, the purpose of the oaths and commitments. If God isn't saying that oaths are bad, and how do we know that? Number one, write write this somewhere, God himself gives oaths. All throughout the Old Testament, God promises things, he gives oaths, he vows to things. Every one of the covenants is a vow, it's an oath. I commit to you the following, and I will see it too through the end. Now, why does God do that? Is God known to be a liar? No, the Bible says God does not lie. He is truth. He is the, his, the Spirit of God is called the Spirit of Truth. So why does he do it? Because God shows us the reason why we have oaths today. And that is, it seems that in weighty issues and times, God chose to elevate his speech with an oath. So let me give you an example of an oath. After um, the, uh, um, the flood, God says to uh, Noah. I make this oath to you, this promise, this vow to you. I will never destroy the earth again. I won't do that. Not going to bring more floods on. You don't have to worry about that. I stand by it. Why? Because he wanted to elevate. Hey, I want you to hear this loud and clear. I want you to know before everybody, I'm not going to do what I've said. I'm not going to do. It's it's solid. It's ironclad. And so there are times in the uh, Westminster Catechism of Faith and the Heidelberg Confession, both do a very good job of articulating that the reason why we have oaths is for weighty matters where truthfulness and trustworthiness is, is needed. That fidelity for the good of the community, the good of your neighbor, is established. And so you ask the question what is the purpose of these things? There are times, whether in the courtroom, or in the marriage encounter, or even within the church, that we are called to commit, that we are called to vow to some things. Now, why do we do it? I want to take a vow that we give here at the church as one way of communicating why vows and oaths and commitments are important. Here at the church, the way that you become a member of Village Bible Church is by the signing of membership commitments. You can call them oaths, you can call them vows, you can call them uh, promises, but they are a set level of things. And, and there are some uh, who will say, well, that's, that's an ungodly practice. That's something that we don't need to do. Can't you just take my yes to be yes and my no to be no? Well, there are times in the life of, of things where we need to take oaths. Now, would I say that every time we do something, we need to take an oath? Do I need to go to the elders and say, I vow to never miss church and all of that? So No. But there are times where, as people, we should commit to things. And here's what the elders in the congregation have affirmed some years ago. We affirm that as members, we need to commit to a set of ideals, a set of principles, a set of things that are steeped in God's Word that talk about what it means to live holy lives, personal lives of holiness amidst a corporate body. Now, why do we do that? I want you to give you three reasons why we do it. Number one, it forms a common agreement. It forms a common agreement. What it says, listen to me, we don't have the luxury of the church telling us as people what to do. We don't have that. There's no hierarchy here with regards to that. The church is the people of God. And so there has to be some level of common agreement as to what we agree on and don't agree on. And so we need to understand where we at on things. And so the church as a whole, the group of believers, gets together and we have formed not only, what you will, a constitution, but a statement of faith and a statement of how we are going to teach the Word of God, how we are going to affirm the Word of God, how we are going to hold to the Word of God. And that commitment helps us to understand exactly where we are in agreement. It helps us understand once and for all, this is the things that we agree upon. Number two, it allows for accountability. Accountability. And so what then we say is, is after I read it, every member of the church then says, okay, I not only say I agree with it just in my heart where nobody can hear or understand or see it. Uh, Remember, nobody can read the heart of a man except for God himself. And so what we ask for is not a simple tacit approval in your heart but that it'd be signed. And so on a yearly basis, we ask all of our members to sign this document. Why? Because we want to push paper around from here to kingdom come? No, so that there's accountability. And so once a year, we gather together as members and we say, this is what we believe. This is what we affirm. And this is how I want to be held accountable. I want to know the rules, if you will, of how I am to live out the Christian life. And when I don't live that out, I want to know what you are going to do uh, for me to enable me to uh, pursue Christ's likeness Finally, it addresses the consequences. One of the things that we wanted to make abundantly clear, we believe is, is a good thing to do, it's a biblical thing to do, is to articulate to the people what the scriptures do, and that is what happens when I fail. What is the course of action in different circumstances? And so our membership commitments is a document that lays forth this is how we are going to respond, both good and in times of bad, to a certain situation. And so it forms a common agreement, it allows for accountability, and it addresses the consequences that are laid forth. That's what an oath is. And so what the church has done is in one singular place, it has said in the area of membership, we believe an oath is an important thing. It's a solemn response before God and one another that I'm going to live according to the things that that have been laid out before me. I understand it for accountability. I understand it for the consequences. Now think about that. It's no different than the oath that we take before um, uh, a judge in a courtroom that allows for trust. It's no different than the oath of office many of us take, whether in the military, as citizens, or even the president of the United States. And so then that brings us then to, okay, so we understand what was going on in the day. They were violating this We understand that there are places for oaths, that even the church here at Village Bible uh, pursues an oath with its membership commitments. Well, what does it mean for us practically? So notice finally the practicality for today. What in the world are we supposed to do with this passage? How are we to live in light of it? Well, there's a couple things that I want you to walk away from. Number one, it means that this text before us commands honesty in all of our conversations. So you walk away and say, well, I, I don't give many oaths. And when I do, I think I do a pretty good job of dealing with them. Well, that's not all that Jesus is saying. What Jesus is addressing is uh, the command for us to be honest. Now, some of us are liars. And we say things that we know are lies. I have a friend who attends this church who will at times call me and say, hey, I got a be- it's funny, we say this. i got to be honest with you. Well, everything else you've said isn't honest. And he say, yeah, you're right. It wasn't honest. I just lied to you. And he's a man that recognizes that it is easy and quick to tell lies. And I will tell you, you know, last week, uh, some, you know, some people came, our, our divorced brothers and sisters came and said, oh, that, was, that was a hard sermon. Let me tell you something. Uh, divorce is easy to be convicted under because it's a matter of point in time. It's easy. It's a public thing. You know, it's a lot easier for us to say, well, I don't lie. And you know what? I spent some time this last week thinking of some of the lies that I've told. And I'll tell you, George Mueller has a quote that, in essence, I'm going to butcher the quote. But he says, "I, I, I desire not to tell lies, but when I think about lies, I find out how many I tell. And here's the thing. We do it so often and so casually that we never know that what we're saying is a lie they're half-truths. And you say, to well, I, I don't lie. I don't try to deceive people. Well, we tell lies when we tell people we're going to be somewhere, and then we come up with a reason why we can't be there. Uh, I think there's a lot of lying that goes on within our church. And so we are called in our church and in our communities and in our workplaces to be people of honesty. Ephesians 4.25 says we are to put off falsehoods and live in the truth. So that's number one. Number two, it calls us to consistent Christianity. What it means is that when we say we are going to do something, that we do it. Now here's why the mouth is such an important part to our Christianity. As I said before, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And you see, we say a lot of sanctimonious and sanctified things, all the while deep inside we think totally differently on the subject matter. And what Jesus is saying is, is, hey, allow your words to be a picture of what you believe. Don't be dishonest with them. The worst testimony we can have as believers is to be lying individuals who are not trustworthy. Because here's why. Because the way, the mechanism by which people are saved is through the proclamation of the gospel. If we fail in our trustworthiness, then why in the world would an unbelieving world listen to us when we preach the gospel? So if we're known to be liars, if we're known to be insincere in our words, then why would anybody listen to us when we proclaim his truth? That's why Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12 to be an example in your life and he says in your speech. The final one that I think is an all-important one that we don't think about is it compels us to meet our commitments. Do you tell people that you're going to do things and then not live up to them? Let me ask you a couple areas in commitments. With regards to your marriage, you committed to some things. You said in, in, in light of the witnesses before you and God, you vowed to things. Now let me ask you, are you living up to them? Why did you say them in the first place if you had no intention of living up to them? Why did you bring God into the equation by uttering them from your mouth if you weren't going to live up to them? Live up to your marital commitments. How about with regards to your kids? We all come up here at at some time to time and we'll bring our cute little babies up here. I'm seeing a whole bunch of car seats these days. So we're going to have a whole bunch of more babies. Pastor Keith's going to hold these babies and oh, look at how cute they are. And they got their special little outfits on. And mom and dad are going to stand up here and we're going to commit to raising our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord that we are going to make sure that we're spiritual role models. We're going to commit. And we commit to all these things. Do we mean them? Have we even thought about those commitments since we made them publicly? Have we thought about that it's going to be difficult at times, our kids aren't going to be our biggest fans when we put our foot down on some things? I'm getting to the point right now where I'm becoming unpopular with my son. Uh, because he's saying that not every parent operates the way the but all parents do. And he doesn't like that. And I needed this weekend, we had some time alone, and I had to talk with him about the commitments I've made to God, and I want to be true to those commitments, and not now not do them because I'm going to be unpopular with my oldest son. What about with regards to your job? Let me ask you, does your boss know that when you say something, you're going to do it? Can I tell you, as, as a pastor, I know a lot of things. As a boss, I know the great joy of knowing that when I say, guys, I need you to be in at this time, at this place, that I don't have to worry about it is the greatest solace a boss can have. That when their employees say they're going to be somewhere, that there isn't a litany of excuses on why they're not where they are. Are you a person that pursues your job as if you are serving God, not man? This is where we live. Finally, what about the church? Now, I'm going to lay something out before you, and I'll have you chew on it. But I'm going to speak to, first of all, the members of the church and ask, are you living up to your commitments? It is time in the year uh, where we will start on Friday signing uh, our commitments again. And I'm going to ask you not to just go and just say, well, I signed, I signed it before, but really prayerfully consider. I'm making this oath before my brothers and sisters. I'm making this oath before God. Am I going to live by it? Now, the thing I love about our membership commitments is it doesn't say I'm going to do all these things. It says I'm going to strive. I'm going to endeavor. I'm going to try uh, my best to pursue godliness knowing that sin is a tough, tough enemy. I'm going to endeavor to do these things. Have you committed to that? Are you willing to take a look once again and prayerfully say, am I up for this? Number two, for those who aren't members, I have a question. Why not? What what has caused you, for whatever reason, to not commit to this local body? Now, I'm not talking, please hear me, first-time visitor. I'm not expecting you to become a member of this church today. But after a long enough time where you have seen the church operate, where you've seen the church to be trustworthy in the places that they need to be trustworthy, to be people of the word. Let me ask you, why do you keep dating the church? Why do you come and not commit? Why do you come with a consumer mindset instead of that of being a part of a family? We're a family. We're the body of Christ. And the Bible says that we are commit ourselves to that family, that we are to be so unified that we are the arms and the legs, the fingers and the toes of one body in Christ. And that body is seen in the local entity of the church. Now, think about it. How would your family operate if every time you were going to hold an event or hold something in the church or in the family, your kid says, Well, I haven't bought into it yet. I'm seeing what other families are doing right now. And if there's a better offer, maybe I'll go to that. You see, what has happened is, is we have nullified the commitment to the local church that has made the evangelical Christian a spectator. And so there are some today that have no commitment to this church. Just keep doing what you're doing, Village Bible Church, and as long as you meet my criteria, I'm here. But the second you preach something I don't like, the second you don't play the music I don't like, the second that you do something I don't like, well, then I'm out of here. Brothers and sisters, you're dating the church. You're not in committed relationships with it. Now, does that mean once you're committed, you can never go? No, the Bible says only marriage is that way. But while you're here, I would say, why aren't you committed? And so this is a word for all of us. And it's a question that we have to ask. Are we willing to lay our word on the line, knowing that it will cost us? Now, some of you will say, and I'll say this in closing, some of you will say, well, I'll just be maybe on everything that keeps me out of it. Then I don't commit and get in trouble and some will say that that's what they're thinking. Here's the problem. Maybe doesn't work because notice the last verse of the of the scripture says, "Let what you say simply be yes or no." Maybe doesn't work. So let's be people of truth. Let us be people of integrity, whether in oaths or everyday conversation, let our yes be yes and our no be no to the glory of God and to the evangelism of the unbeliever who hears our word whether we are proclaiming the gospel or saying a project will be done when it's supposed to be done. Let us be truthful in all our endeavors. This is what the word of the Lord is teaching us today. Let us live according to it. Father God, we come before you, and we thank you for your word, and your word is tough. Lord, I, I have failed at this this week, and, and I admit that before this body of people. And so, Lord, I pray that, that each of us would take a look anew at the issue of oaths and vows, at the issue of our everyday conversation, at the issue of lying, whether telling the truth. Lord, all of these issues of the mouth and of the tongue. Lord, I pray that we would really seek to know why we say the things we do, that we'd be careful with every word that we share, knowing that it's in your presence. Lord, whether it's in the way of exaggeration, whether it's a way of storytelling, whether, Lord, it's in the small things or the large things. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who are seen not only by others, but by you as people who are trustworthy and have integrity of speech. Lord, we live in a world that glamorizes lying, it glamorizes being deceitful, and that that is not to be a part of the church. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, rid us of all of that falsehood, so that we may put on truth and speak the truth in love even at times when it hurts. And Lord, that by doing so, again, we would glorify you and we would be able to evangelize the lost through the fidelity of what we say. Now, Lord, send us out into this world. We're telling the truth as a a commodity that has seen less and less each and every day. Let it be everything that we say and do. Let it be truth that compels us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.